We have a lot to get through this morning. If you didn't get a copy of the slides, then make sure you run back there, walk, somehow go back there and get a copy of those. They will help you. Um, And we are going to hit the topic, and it's a broad one this morning, so we're going to go at a higher level, not as deep as sometimes we do, about the church. Today is all about the church. So if you did not have a chance to listen to the aligned sermon from Grace uh, Community Church on this chapter, go back and listen to it. Two reasons. On a humorous side, it's when John was younger, John MacArthur was younger, and he has a whole, he's, he's a little bit more punchy than the refined John that we know now. And uh, so if you just want to have that experience, you can have that. But also, he does a really great job of going into other areas that we won't hit necessarily this morning, and it's just a terrific um, um, accent or basis or foundation for our topic this morning. So if you haven't hit that, I would encourage you to do that. But for this morning, I want to invite us to, uh, to get, oh, and get, if you have the slides, it's great. Uh, we will go through quite a bit, ask questions along the way as you have them, and I'll do my best to answer them or say we'll answer it later if I don't know. All right. Now let's go ahead and pray, since this is God's word, and we'll get started. Father, we are so blessed to be here, to sit with your word, uh, Lord, to sit underneath it on your day. Uh, Father, if we stop and think that um, how if you had not given us your word to know you, to know your attitudes, to know your attributes, to know the, the things that you consider worthy, the things that you consider sinful, the things that are wise for us to do, the purposes that you have given us, Lord, we would be utterly lost. And uh, it is out of your grace and mercy and love that we have it. And we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you so much for salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that we can understand and apply your word to our hearts and defeat sin with it. Uh, Father, we we do pray uh, and praise you this morning for your work in our hearts to apply your word. Help us to do that as we think about our lives in context of your church and how we fit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go ahead and get started, where we are, right, just on the context of where we've been and where we are, we have today and then four more chapters left, and we'll finish Fundamentals of the Faith. So we are well past halfway. Uh, Today is the church. What about the church? The universal church, the local church, and then fellowship in the church, worship in the church, and the ordinances. So we have five key truths we're going to run through today as we work together. Um, and our memory verse for this is something that we have done in small groups, so you should be familiar-ish with it, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and it is, what, it is a great set of verses for who we should be in the church, right? As you all see it there, is what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're supposed to not forsake our own assembling together. We're supposed to encourage one another all the more as the day draws near. We have purpose in the local church, and it's good purpose, and we're going to dive into that today. Um, as a roadmap of where we're going, we are going to hit the church universal, which is a look at an illustration that God gives us out of his word of the body of Christ and how Christ, um, the illustration also is a family. Then we're going to hit the local church and what are our responsibilities there, how has God organized it so that it's not just random chaos happening on Sunday mornings. Because it's not. He's given us very clear instructions as to how that's supposed to be. And then we're going to get into fellowship, and we're going to get into worship and the ordinances, like I said. So let us dive in, because it's a lot to get through in one morning. So the universal church is where we're going. So it's the first illustration I would give you is the body of Christ. So when we think of the universal church, 
If you think about your pre-work, your study in the book and the sermon, what is the universal church? End of story. Did you all hear that? Believers. And that's it. That's the universal church. It is every believer, every person in Christ. No walls, no buildings, no classes, no activities, no setups, no this or that. It's all the believers across the world. The local church, though, in contrast, right, is where a lot of our work happens to follow through, all of our work happens to follow through into what God has given us to do as a body of believers. And we'll get into the local church in more depth in just a minute. But two illustrations for uh, for, for the universal church. It's the body of Christ. So think about a, a body, a physical body, right? We have a head. Christ is our head. And we have that. You see that in Ephesians 5.23, right? It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. God gives us illustrations. So we always know where do our instructions come from? Who wins in an argument? The head, not the hand or the arm or the shoulder, or the knee or the foot. It's we have one head. If we ever need to know which way we go, we go to the head, and the head tells us. Um, the body is made up of those who are called by God. We hit that with believers. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Right? And not only are we part of that body of Christ as Christ is our head, and we are all parts of the body, but he has, another way to think about it, is baptized us into the body through the Holy Spirit. So not only are we part of the body, but we have gone through, like it says in 1 Corinthians 12, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, yes, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter if you have a testimony that said, hey, well, I was saved at a young age and grew up in a Christian family, or I got saved yesterday and I have done whatever I wanted for the last X amount of years in my life, or of a socioeconomic background or geographic backgrounds. It doesn't matter. You are part of the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And not only that is you're a member, but just as every physical member of our bodies has a purpose, you have also been given purpose. Everybody has a unique function within the body. Not one, this is separate from talents or things you just might not be good at. This is a special gift that you've been given. Next time we meet was going deep on, on spiritual gifts, so I'm not going to go there today. But you have been given a special purpose by God to fit into the body. Some of you are arms, eyes, ears, whatever. Choose the illustration and go there. And, and that is awesome because you have purpose. You have purpose. If you'd open your Bibles, there's a longer bit that I can't fit on. A, I could, but it would take like seven slides. Um, so go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to pick up in verse 14 where we looked at we were baptized in one by the, into one body by the Spirit. We're going to look at, though, what is it? What does God give us through Paul to understand how this body works? So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, pick up in verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason, reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. Key just as he 
desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. Okay, so let me pause. He just went straight to the heart of your ego. That's where he went. Hopefully you felt it, which is, hey, what if I'm a part of the body that's not like the showy part? What if that's a unique gift that God has given me? I'm a servant. I serve however God has gifted me in the body of Christ. He said you are all an important part of the body, and we actually bestow more honor on those that aren't the showy ones. Why? Because our ego has no place. Our pride has no place in the body of Christ. That's called sin. So he, if, you're, if you ever feel, I feel that tug when I read a passage like this, like, okay, well, there's some, there's no, everybody has been given a unique, special, God-given, as he desired spot in this body of Christ for you to do your work and please him. And that is awesome. So check your ego out the door. We don't need it. Um, but I just want, and that, that's where God goes. So let me continue. In verse 24, the second half, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. We could stop right there and you could just use that as a rule for what should I do? And you just repeat that last bit. Christ is the head. I'm part of his body and he's given me something to do. Got it. And then I would run. And then I would run. It's crucial that we figure this out. We can't be a united body of Christ and still be thinking, well, I got they, they do this. I, do, I wish I could do. That is not what God wants for you. That is not what God commands of you. So the application question that comes up with reading something like that is not only, hey, is my pride getting involved? And if it is, repent, confess, move it out. But also, is it where am I supposed to be ministering inside the body of Christ? Am I the arm, the hand, the foot, the eye? Pick, you know, where am I supposed to be? And if you found your spot, awesome. If you haven't found your spot, this is one of the references from the sermon that you should go listen to by John MacArthur if you didn't catch it. Because he had an example of someone said, I, okay, I'm ready to serve. I want to get in there. But you don't have a need for a third grade teacher. John's response to them was, it's not an organization. Don't wait for the church as an organization to give you a spot. If you think that you're good at teaching kids, go find kids to teach. If the church needs you, then go to where there. If it's outside the church in your neighborhood, start up a Bible club in your neighborhood. Go use the gift that God's given you as part of the body of Christ. We're in the universal body of Christ part. So go be a part of the body of Christ he's given you to do. That was just really helpful to me. Like, Don't get hung up on, does my organization have a spot for me? One, it's not your organization. Two, it's not the organization that gives you spots to serve. It's Christ's organization. He gave you a gifting. Go use it. If you don't know what it is, start with something that you think you're good at. Pray a lot about what am I supposed to be doing, and he will direct you. That's how you know. That's how you know. Okay, mini sermon over. That's the body of Christ. We have another illustration that God gives us, and that is Christ as, or the body of Christ seen as a family as opposed to a body. So it's another illustration. So 1 John 1.12 says that we're all children of God. 
But it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those he believe in his name. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, we are also brothers and sisters. This verse is in the context of marriage. So it's, if, and so it says, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. But the key part where you get brother and sister is right there. But the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. In such cases, but God has called us to peace. We are brothers and sisters. We are children of God as God is our father. Hebrews 2.11 puts it really clearly. God is our father and Christ is our brother. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God is our father. Christ is our brother. Just pause right there and you can praise in your hearts. God has sanctified us to where when he sees us through Christ's perfect righteousness, we are part of his family. You are welcome. You are invited there. You are, you have a spot to land always. In healthy families that are close, you see there are some things. Like what makes a healthy family really close? What are some of the attributes that are there? Like they're super close. Like, man, those people, they're uptight. They are gracious with one another. Yeah, someone steps on their toes and someone doesn't take their ball and go home, right? They th- okay, they're gracious with one another. Good. They spend a lot of time together. They apply Philippians too. Consider each other more important than themselves, right? It's the same attributes inside the body of Christ. The family attributes actually stole it from the body of Christ and applied it in their physical families, right? Um, and that's what we see in the local church is how does this all work out? And we're going to hit those exact attributes as we go. So that's the universal church. Now we're going to transition into what about the local church, right? What are we supposed to do? And so we're going to structure this in a couple of ways. We're going to talk about, as you see on the slide, the priorities of the church. And then after we cover the priorities of the local church, which if you're thinking of it as a helpful application, I would give you is like when I'm looking at a church, if I ever have to move, if God takes my job and puts me somewhere else, or whatever the case is, if I'm looking for a local church, I should be looking for these priorities. I should be looking for them to be structured like what we're about to see. Um, if someone's asking you, where's a good place to go? I live in wherever. Then you should encourage them the same way. These are the priorities you're looking for. This is the structure you're looking for. This is not because it is our Sunday school class that I can say that. It's because it's straight from the Word of God. This is what's you're supposed to see. So the priorities of the church come from Acts 2.42, which I did not put on the slide. Um, and I'll read it for you. They are continually devoting themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So for teaching, we have a couple verses. First Peter 2.2 2 says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that it by you, so that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. In Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, we're going to come back to this one a little bit, but it says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. He gave us fellowship as a purpose. We're going to have a whole section on fellowship come up in a little bit, but it's the idea of being deeply involved in each other's lives to minister to each other wherever there is need, wherever there is opportunity to build it up. He gave us communion together. And we'll cover this also as one of the ordinances to remember Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And he's given us prayer. He's given us prayer as we, um, James 5.16 says it better than I would. So you can see that on your slide or on the screen. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is the heartbeat of you as a person in relation to God. This is the heartbeat of the church in relation to God. This is the heartbeat of the people in relation to the church. Recognizing that God is our Father, Christ is our head, continuously aligning ourselves to that truth. Because every time we get off of that truth, now the opportunity for disunity, the opportunity for division, the opportunity for selfishness is creeping its way in, the opportunity for error. But if we're continually talking to God about his word and how it applies to our lives, that opportunity is severely diminished. That's why he's given us those priorities in the church. So all of these come about into some structure. All of these components get put into a structure and because God has not left us with, okay, great, you now know the four things that you need to do. Go. He's given us more than that so that we would have order. So we think of the structure of the early church. I told you we're coming back to Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. We'll see that. Not only has he given us priorities, he's told us how we go about using them, right? So he's given us gifted men in the church to do certain things. Ephesians 4, 11, 12 again says he gave some as apostles. Now, apostles, that means one sent on a mission. Two usage in scripture. The usage of the apostles that had read the qualifications as having been um, in person, a person with Christ and seen his resurrection, those, that office of apostle is done with because those people passed on. They died. And so that, that office of apostle is complete. Those qualifications can't be met by anyone outside of the 12 and Paul. Because you remember Paul wrote to Damascus. He saw Christ. He saw the resurrected body and was brought in and given the qualifications of apostle. But apostle also means sent one in the general sense. And there are examples in Scripture. Barnabas, Acts 14.4 is an example. Silas and Timothy are listed in 1 Timothy 2.6. And there are others. So Think about the word apostle. He's given some as apostles, but some in the apostolic office to bring about the early church, that is shut, that is done. People that are sent to go do his work, um, that is still active. He said he's also given some as prophets, people that foretell or foretell the truth. That office ceased once the canon was complete. Once there's no more foretelling of God's word that's new. There's no more new revelation. He finished it when John finished revelation. And he's given some as evangelists. These are people that are gifted in bringing the gospel to bear in any situation. This office is still running. This office is still running. You may be one of those people like, hey, evangelism is not only my passion about obeying scripture, but this is something that I am pushed further into. God has uniquely given me a function in the body to do this, and we have those today. And he's also given pastors and teachers. This is someone who shepherds, cares for God's people. As you think about a shepherd with a flock of sheep, that's exactly the illustration you should be looking for, is someone that is guiding them to water, someone that is guiding them to food, someone that is guiding them to the right things to do, keeping them from danger, that is out there protecting the flock. He's given men as pastors and teachers. And if you look back at Ephesians 4, 11, 12, the last bit, after pastors and teachers, it starts with four, right? Who are the saints that are supposed to be equipped by these people? The body of believers in the local church. Yeah, us. That's us. Okay, what are they supposed to be built up for? You can just read the rest. The, go, I'm just going right, like, equipping the saints for the, for the work of the service, to be in service to the local body. Okay, well, so our work of service is supposed to accomplish what? 
Don't you love God's word? You don't have to know. Just read it. I mean, you should know it and read it. But you, you see, it's, it's right there for you. It's right there for you to build up the body of Christ. That's what we're here to do, right? That's what we're here to do. When you think about that close, tight-knit family, if your goal is to build up everybody around me, you're going to operate a different way. If your goal is to show up and, hey, I, I really hope that person brings that special dish because that's the one I love, that's your whole purpose in going to that family gathering, you're probably not going to build them up very much. You can be thinking about Thanksgiving and the favorite food all you want. I wasn't thinking about that, just a general illustration. Um, but hopefully that person does bring that thing. Those are good. Um, but that's our job in the body of Christ, is to build up the body. We're supposed to be equipped. We've been given people to do that. And among those people, he's also set us up with specific offices, specific levels of leadership. I say level. I shouldn't say level. Just people that there has to be organization within the local body of Christ. And he set that up. This is from Scripture. He's given us the office of elder or overseer. This is that office of, you might think of Christ as the great shepherd. This is the under shepherd, right? Uh, these are folks, Acts 14.23 says it this way. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And I'm sorry, I was one off. And then Titus 1.5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete. Why? That you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Okay, so how are these elders that you're appointing supposed to behave? Well, they're supposed to rule. Now, you hear that word rule, it's possible. I know it happens in my heart. It's like, I don't want to be ruled over. That just like that. Okay, well, let's define rule with Scripture before we get too off base, okay? So 1 Timothy 5.17 describes their rule like this. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So, ah, ruling is not like you might think of as a ruler or a monarch. It's working hard at preaching and teaching to equip the body to build up the body of Christ for the work of service. That is rule. Okay, well, what else? 1 Timothy 3.5 puts it this way. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's like, okay, well, if they're in that office and they're ruling, they're responsible. They can manage their own household, and then they can expand beyond that and manage more. So what does that even look like? We'll continue. They oversee and they shepherd. First chapter, 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I exhort the, the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. What are you supposed to do, elders? Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. That is someone, if you're thinking about who has authority over me, that's a description of someone you would want to have authority over you in that sense. They're not, e they're not eager to do it, but they're volunteering. There's a sacrifice. They're not out for sordid gain, and they're doing it according to the will of God. Acts 20, 28 puts it this way. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now you have someone protecting you. Someone whose volunteered position is to protect, is to shepherd, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In this context, Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's going to never see them again. This is his last words to them. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And it's the Holy Spirit that's made you an overseer. There's no pride. There's no eager e ego in there. There's just protection. So if you've given some as elders and overseers, then you also have people that are members. Okay, makes sense. Organization of the church. 
So you have some of their members, and they obey and submit to the leaders. We'll come back to Hebrews 13, 17 and look at it again, but it's in, 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 in quick form. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For why? Again, not because they overlord over you and press you down and make you. No, why? Because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. This is how God has organized it. Do you see the humility? Do you see that these people step up into that spot to shepherd, to protect, to watch over people's souls? And so we have a responsibility as members to make it joyful for them. So as we wrap up the idea of elder, we're also going to hit deacon, but it's important to see the qualifications. Who are these people supposed to be? What are they supposed to be like so that we know, right? So 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 is a key passage. You can turn there uh, and read that with me. Again, a long section on a slide doesn't make sense. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. It says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Those are the people that you look for. Um, that's the character traits of an elder or an overseer. Titus 1, 6 to 9 is also a sister passage to the qualifications of elder that you can go look at. We're not going to look at it this morning. But he's also given deacons, people to serve and lead service and ministry within the church. So if Acts chapter 6, verse 2 is where the deacons first came about. And so there are examples of service. You can see what they were doing. It says, so the 12, the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren... Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. People to own the ministries of the local body of Christ and to serve well in that office, um, God has given us organization. First Timothy 3, if you're still there, verses 8 to 13, describe who you should be looking for in the office of deacon. Um, it says deacons likewise must be men of dignity. So likewise, all those things above, um, likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children in their own households, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. He's given every member of the body of Christ a spot. You're a member, a deacon, an elder, a pastor, teacher, an evangelist. We'll go deep into the gifts in two Sundays. And one of those is going to be yours. That's where you, that's where you operate. God has supernaturally given every member of the body of Christ 
purpose. He is our head, and we are the rest of the body. And as the head has the brain and tells Hello. Hey, we did it. The recording doesn't know what happened, but we do. Um, so we think about our leadership. I'm just going to keep going, right? Uh, the next one I have is 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Again, this is how we respond to leaders. We imitate their faith. Awesome. It says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Appreciate them and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Right? You esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And we already looked at Hebrews 13, 17. But you obey your leaders and you submit to them. And you let them do that with joy and not with grief. Because that would be unprofitable for you. Why unprofitable? Because God has given structure to the church. And if you buck that structure and you don't do it the way that God says this is the right way to do that, it is unprofitable for you, regardless of how you feel about it. He's given you that. And also as members, we have a responsibility to the word of Christ, not only to ourselves, not only to our leaders, but also to the word. And I uh, jotted down a couple verses for this one. They're on the slide. I'm sorry. I added them later. Joshua 1.8 is one that we are familiar with with small groups. It says, this book of the law, you shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall do what? Meditate on it day and night, so they may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Colossians 1.28, we've studied this year, says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. So that we can complete in Christ. We can be made mature through the word of God. Colossians 3.16, last one on this one, says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That only happens through the word of Christ. That only happens through God's word when we obey it. So we have a responsibility to that as well. If we're truly acting in God's interests and not our own, whether you think about the universal church, every believer, the local church, our current context, or any local church's context, to be united in a common purpose is only happening through the word of God. Only happening through the word of God. But once you're in the local church, and we know how we're organized, we know how we're structured, a specific one I said we'd be coming back to that's a priority is fellowship. Fellowship in the local body. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it supposed to be like? So in fellowship in the church, when you think about a, a fellowship, this is talking about a group of people that have a singular common purpose that is so clear that if anybody outside of them were to come and see them, they would go, oh, those are together. They are united in a common purpose that is so clear that you can't, it's obvious that they are together. That is a group um, of one. So unity is paramount then. First of all, if you're going to have fellowship, you have to have unity within the church, which means you can't have any divisions. You have to have the same mind. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I exhort you, brethren, be of the name, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. And we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, 25 a little bit earlier. It says, so that there may be no division in the body. Again, no division, no room for it. But that the members may have the same care for one another. Christ gave us the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And love your who? Neighbor as yourself. There's no disunity if that's being lived out. 
There's no division if that's being lived out. And not only should there be no division, you should be doing the opposite, which is promoting humility and gentleness. Promoting it, pushing it forward, making it known to everybody, um, holding it dear. So Ephesians 4, 2-3 says this, With all humility, there's your key, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's not so that people get along. Don't miss that. The purpose of no division and promoting unity is that we preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is for the gospel to be clear, for the church to operate the way it's supposed to operate. As far as being unity, having unity in the church, we also have to be humble. Alejandro, you mentioned this. See others as more important than yourself. Philippians 2, 1 to 4. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and that if statement right there is more sense or because. Don't think it's a question mark. It's a because it's there. Um, Greek to English doesn't help us there. Therefore, because or since there is any encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is any fellowship of the Spirit, since affection and compassion, because those things are there in Christ, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If you want a pure, pure, true fellowship in the body of Christ, it's right there. You do that, you will have fellowship. I mean, think about those relationships that you've had with believers, you go to a conference or you go to a visit at a family's church and you're at lunch afterwards and all of a sudden you're just super connected to people that you've never known before. Have you ever experienced that? That's because it's not in you that it's happening. It's not because we had common interests of sports or fun or games or entertainment or study or work. It's because we have unity in Christ. That's why you can have those close relationships. But when it comes to fellowship in the church, yes, be unified, but also realize that there's no fellowship with unbelievers. Now, I used a key word there, fellowship. Sorry, I didn't give you the Philippians passage. There you go. There's no true fellowship with unbelievers. Keyword true, keyword fellowship. I didn't say friendship. You can have relationships with all kinds of people. God quite honestly says the opposite. Go into the world. Make disciples of all the nations. You're going to have relationships with people outside the body of Christ. But true fellowship, the way we've designed it, we've defined it, I should say. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15 says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Lawlessness. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? If you have Christ, you can have fellowship with that person. If you're a believer, you can't have that kind of fellowship Outside of that, true fellowship, the fellowship of the body of Christ can only be had with the body of Christ. What happens when you try to have that kind of close-knit, influential relationship with someone outside the body of Christ? Say it again. They influence you. That's how that happens. That's how that happens. It's going to pull you down. Again, it doesn't mean don't have friendships with unbelievers. I'm not saying that. If you heard that, hear me now say, I'm not saying that. Witness to them. Have a relationship with them. Love them like God would love them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Bring them to the church. Share the gospel with them. But true fellowship 
defined by Scripture is only between believers. And then the last thing we do with fellowship is we minister to one another. I told you the one another's were coming, right? Um, and I'm not going to go through all of them. But for the next few slides, we'll see it is just a few as a highlight to live out the one another's in Scripture to each other. So the first one, love one another, comes from Mark 9.50. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If you're thinking emotional love, this is the type of love that, hey, I'm going to love you so much that I put myself down and to bring you up. That's why you can have peace when you love someone like that. But not only that, give preference to one another. Out of Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Out of Romans 15.14, admonish one another. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Christ gives us specific instructions on how to do that. Do it with grace, humility. Consider the plank in your own eye before you go try to take the splinter out of someone else's and then admonish them with, not your opinion, the word of God. Come alongside them and love them enough. Love them enough to say, this concerns me. But Romans 15, 14 says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with excuse me, all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. You can't admonish someone unless you're filled with all knowledge. Did you see that? That's got to come from the Word of God. That's coming from, hey, you said something I didn't like. That's not admonishment. That's asking for forgiveness or trying to love someone. But also, we comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, it says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Just a few other one another's. Encourage and build up one another. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Remember the first Thess the Thessalonians, right? They're the church that, hey, you're doing things right. Excel still more. Keep going. Keep growing. Which is why it says, keep building each other up just as you also are doing. And the last one another we'll look at, but not the last one of Scripture, have fellowship with one another. And this defines fellowship. First John 1 John 1.7. What is it? If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, you have a whole body of believers doing that, you have fellowship. You have unity. You have what God has designed us to be doing. And if you have that going on, it leads to one conclusion, just one. You have to realize worship. If that's happening and you see a group of sinful people redeemed by Christ operating like this, there's only one place to go, and that's to realize that it's only God that could do that, and that's worship. So let's talk about this is our fourth topic of this morning. I told you we're moving through a lot. Worship. What is worship? It's ascribing worth or value to someone or something. In the context of the scripture, it's never a thing. That's called idolatry. To someone, God himself. He alone is worthy of all of our worship. Um, because he um, is, as we'll look to see, he, he, it, it belongs to God alone. Um, I, I Just personally, right, when you think worship belongs to God alone, I'll show you this verse, right? Uh, our God is a jealous God and is not willing to share his worship with any other. And I see that word jealous in current English context. You think, well, jealousy is not good, Right? But you have to think, well, hold on, we're talking about God. He can't be bad. Okay, so that strikes out everything I knew about that. What is he? He's jealous for what is due his name. 
If you were perfect and you knew that worship was right, then you would be jealous for it. You would desire that. You would say, no, that what, what is right is you worship. So it's okay for God in that sense. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6 says this. You, I don't think I put it on the slide. I did not. Um, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. We're talking about the God of the universe. We're talking about the God that Revelations 4, 10 to 11 created everything. This is who you're talking about. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. You're talking about the source of everything. And yes, he deserves all of our worship. But not just worship, true worship, worship based out of Scripture, uh, worship based out of the truth of God. And so when you think about true worship, Matthew 15, 8 to 9, tells us that it's not just, hey, I recognize that you created, and hey, that's pretty impressive. But how is it supposed to be? It says, this people honors me with their lips. That's what I just showed you in this example of. But their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. It's got to come from our heart. It's got to come from the core of our being that says, I recognize that I am your created being, that I am sinful. And you go through the entire gospel because I'm a sinner. You have to judge me. But not only that, you have loved me so much. You provided salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. How did you do that? He took on flesh. He left heaven. He took on flesh and he lived a sinless life, 33-ish years Tempted as we are, yet never without sin, Hebrews says. Why? So that he could do two things. He can go to the cross and pay the penalty of our sins and be, be blameless without blemish sacrifice. And secondly, he could give us his righteousness in the flesh so that we could have a relationship with God. That's why we worship. That's where we come to true worship. John 4.23 and 4.24 say this, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It means we have to know the truth. You have to know who God is. MacArthur puts it this way. This is a quote from him. To worship God in truth, one must seek to know him by learning about his attributes and actions. The worst deed committed in the universe is failure to give God honor or glory. Above everything else, God is to be glorified. To glorify God is to exalt him to recognize him as supremely worthy of honor and to acknowledge his divine attributes. That's worship. That's worship. And so how does that play out? We worship God with our lives. Um, a couple of verses uh, that you know, probably uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, it's not isolated to Sundays only. It's every day, every moment, everything you do is done to his glory. And John 14, verse 13 says, it's... Um, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. Why? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So that we glorify God back with everything that we do. 
our worship, whether it's the specific worship on a Sunday, which we're about to go do, or it's our worship on any other given day, is for his glory, to give him what he deserves and what we recognize. He's given us a couple of big ordinances to help us remember that. So we'll cover these last two, uh, the ordinances of the church, the first being baptism, the second being communion. Someone take a shot. What's the purpose of baptism? It's not to get wet. To show our faith. To be identified with Christ. Exactly, Paul. To be identified with Christ. Not just be identified with him, but identified with his burial. The going under the water. To be identified with his death and then his burial. And then coming out of the water, his resurrection. These ordinances have nothing to do with you getting a special measure of grace or a special measure of favor or mercy. They are remembrances. They are actions that we do. Baptism to be identified with Christ. So if we think about baptism, why do we baptize? Because we are commanded to is a simple answer. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, there it is, in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And because it was an example of the early church, Acts 2.41 says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day they were added about 3,000 souls. This is the practice of the church, to identify with Christ through baptism. I'm not going to go through the rest of those references, but you have them on the slide. Well, who should be baptized? Okay, good question. Disciples, believers, and those who receive the Holy Spirit. Those are the same group of people, by the way, not separate three groups of people, right? That's a believer, a sincere believer. You're a disciple of Christ, you're a believer, and you've received the Holy Spirit. Well, what does baptism mean? We saw this a little bit already. Baptism is identification with Christ in his death. This is just Romans 6, 3, and 4 put together. But if you split it out in a little bit of sections, Romans 6, 3 says, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We have been baptized into his death. Romans 6, 4, the first part of it says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. And the rest of 6.4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism. Oh, excuse me, I read the wrong one. That is, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is identification through all of those phases. We are in Christ. The word baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. It means to make fully whelmed or to immerse, which is why we practice immersion in baptism as opposed to sprinkling or any other form. So that's baptism. It's an identification with Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. No special mercy, no special merit, no special grace happens. It's a remembrance so that we can point our worship to God. And the last section we have this morning is communion. I had those on there, sorry. Cheated you. right, so communion, and it's also an act of remembrance. There are denominations, there are people that go to churches, specifically the Catholic Church, they put special merit and grace on this process of communion. Uh, I am not going to go in there to defend their thoughts on that, I don't have time to do that. You need to know what God's Word says about that, and God's Word says this is a remembrance of Christ's death. Why? So that we can drive us to worship, and it can drive us to following suit in how we're supposed to live for Christ. And he did it in a couple ways. This is at the Last Supper, where he, or, he put together this ordinance and gave it to us to remember for all time. It says, the bread is in remembrance of his body. The section in Scripture is 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to, I think, 37. Or, excuse me, 23 to 30. And uh, this is a section. So we'll just look at it in pieces. 
as far as the bread, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember the body of Christ. And then secondly, we remember the blood of Christ, and that's done through the cup. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five and 26, continuing the same spot. It says, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, remembering his blood and the cost of the sacrifice. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Fellowship, worship. Whew. Okay, one more thought. There's a warning in communion. There's a warning in communion. When it comes to communion, specifically, and this, this doesn't come from me, this is the last three verses of 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30. It says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Unworthy manner. It means you have sin that you have unrepentant, you are not repentant of. You are unrepentant in that. You're still practicing it. You won't let it go. You are not clean with the Lord. That is what it means to be in an unworthy manner. So there's a warning here, but a man must examine himself. If there's sin that is unrepentant, then confess it. Repent to the Lord. Renew your mind. Make right the things you need to make right. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick. They were doing that in the Corinthian church. And some sleep, meaning they have died. There's a warning there to be right before the Lord before you remember that official ordinance. So we looked at five key truths today. It was fast. I'm sweating. The universal church, the local church, fellowship in the church, worship in the church, and the ordinances. The bottom line is that God's given us everything we need to know to run in the church and to do it well for his glory. Anything outside of that is us trying to make stuff up, which we should not do. Um, he's given to that today. So I want three ideas for you to think about. One, worship. We're going to worship right now, but how do you practice worship in your daily life? Look at it. God's a jealous God and deserves everything you can muster. Not bad jealous, right jealous. Also think of the idea of unity. Are you promoting it? Is that where your heart is? Are the things you need to address? Or are you promoting unity with gentleness? And then lastly, how are you currently ministering in the body of Christ? God's uniquely gifted you as a person of the local body of Christ to do whatever he needs you to do. Pray if you don't know where to go. Ask the church what is available to serve and if you don't know what to do. But it's not just the local body of Christ inside of a building. It's people in your community, people in your family. Go use your gifts. Let's pray and then I'll let you go. Lord, you are so awesome. We have covered your word and looked at it, and we walk away going, we know exactly what you want us to do. Thank you for that. Um, you indeed, uh, your burdens are light. Uh, Lord, they're, they're not even to be called necessarily burdens. It's what we should do as we worship you. Lord, help us to go worship you as a body, as a local body of Christ with clear hearts and clean minds this morning. Help us to walk before your word with application and doing it because we love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.